Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, famously contrasts uh, cheap grace with costly grace uh, in his little book, The Cost of Discipleship. He writes this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. On the other hand, costly grace is a treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to which a merchant will sell all his goods in order to buy it. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out his eye, which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which his disciples leave their nets behind to follow him. Now, as one professor of church history points out, people can easily trip over this opposition between cheap grace and costly grace. We wonder, is grace something we have to earn? And if we answer that, yes, grace is something we have to earn, we'd both misunderstand Bonhoeffer and, more importantly, we'd misunderstand Christianity. Grace is freely given by Christ to those who repent and believe in him. Yet costly grace recognizes nothing can be cheap to us which was costly to God. Christ's death on the cross for our sins shows how costly grace is for us. And so not as a way to earn God's favor, not as a way to earn God's grace, but in response to the lavish and costly grace that God has poured out for us in Christ, Jesus tells us things like this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or again, as Bonhoeffer says, when Christ bids a man, He bids him come and die. There's a cost to following Jesus. But what does this actually look like? What are the costs of faithfulness to Christ? Well, as we continue our sermon series through Acts, we've been, again, looking at how Christ continues to work through his people still today. And we've been following the ministry of the Apostle Paul as he's been gathering a collection for the church in Jerusalem and has been making his way back to that church where it all began. And last week, we heard his final words to the Ephesian elders. And this week, we see Paul arrive in Jerusalem. And as he arrives, we see the cost of faithfulness to Christ for his ministry. So as we look at Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 36, we'll see that this text is tailored to reveal to us The cost of faithfulness to Christ. This text is tailored to reveal to us the cost of faithfulness to Christ. And in this passage in particular, there's many different kinds of costs. But in this passage, we see three costs or three requirements of faithfulness to Christ. Faithfulness to Christ requires us to be surrendered to his will. Faithfulness to Christ requires us to lay down our freedom for the sake of the gospel. And faithfulness to Christ requires us to be willing to be misrepresented and mistreated. But before we dive into God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider a passage that may be hard for some of us to hear, we ask that you would open your word to us and open us to your word. And through it, you would help us to see 
the great value of Jesus such that it would be a joy to pay any cost to follow him. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that Jesus would be lifted up and we would all be eager to follow him every day, no matter the cost, because of how good and gracious he is. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 21, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can uh, use one of our community Bibles under your seat or the seat next to you. And if you're not familiar uh, with the Bible, you can find uh, uh, Acts on page 930 in our community Bibles. You'll be looking for a big, bold 21. That's a chapter followed by the small number one. That's a verse. And if you don't have a Bible, please consider this our gift to you. We would be glad for you to continue to engage God's word uh, throughout the week. But once you found it, take a moment to quietly prepare your own heart to receive God's word, uh, surrendering whatever burdens, distractions you bring in this morning, and ask him to speak to you. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Wonderful. For the sake of time this morning, I'll be summarizing our text. So in these first 16 verses, verses 1 through 16, we'll see the first cost of faithfulness to Christ. Faithfulness to Christ requires us to be surrendered to his will. Faithfulness to Christ requires us to be surrendered to his will. So here in these verses, we find... Another one of the we texts of Acts, which indicates that Luke, the author, is present. He's seeing everything that's going on and giving an eyewitness testimony of the experience on the journey. And he reports in verse 1 that they had to tear themselves away from the Ephesians and the NIV because they loved each other so deeply. It was hard for them to to move on. And then in verse 2, They began to make their way back to Jerusalem by way of several cities, including the city of Tyre. And then in verse 4, we see that there in Tyre, the disciples urged them in the Spirit not to go on to Jerusalem. But they continue on their way anyway. And we'll revisit this point in a minute. And then in verses 7 through 8, when they come to the city of Caesarea, the port city closest to Jerusalem, they stay with a man named Philip. Philip was one of the men we encountered first in Acts chapter 6, who was one of the first deacons appointed to serve the church there. He later earned the name the Evangelist, as we see in our passage, because he taught the Ethiopian eunuch that Jesus was the suffering servant. And then we learn he had, in verse 9, four daughters, who were all prophets, in fulfillment of both Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2, where we learn that God's Spirit would be poured out on all of God's sons and daughters. Yet Luke doesn't focus on their prophetic words. Instead, in verses 10 through 11, he focuses on the prophetic words of Agabus, a prophet we met also before in Acts, who foretold the famine in Jerusalem. And Agabus here warns Paul that if he goes to Jerusalem, he'll be bound and handed over to the authorities. And so in verse 12, hearing all of this, all of Paul's companions, including Luke, indicated again by that, we plead with him, don't return to Jerusalem. Don't go. We don't want to see you imprisoned. But in verse 13, Paul insists on going, letting them know he is willing to be bound and even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so then in verse 14, when Paul's friends realized they wouldn't be able to persuade him to change his mind, 
They give up and simply say, let the Lord's will be done. And so in verse 15, Paul and his companions make the rest of the way to Jerusalem and stay at the house of Manasseh, one of the earliest disciples. Now, what are we to make of this text? Particularly, what are we to make of Paul's decision to go on to Jerusalem despite the prophecy of Agabus, despite the pleading of his friends, and despite the prophets entire urging him in the spirit not to go? Is Paul ignoring wise counsel? Or even worse, is Paul disobeying the clear leading of the Holy Spirit? After all, again, Luke's summary in verse 4 of the prophets entire is that through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, the answers to these questions are complicated. Commentators are divided. And quite honestly, as I wrestled with this passage, I went back and forth. Was Paul disobeying or was something else going on? But here's where I eventually settled. Although Luke does say in verse 4 of our passage, through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem, Luke also recounts all the way back in chapter 19, verse 21, this. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. Now, if you're listening carefully... That may sound like an even worse problem than Paul just clearly disobeying the Spirit. It may sound like the Spirit is contradicting himself. And so we can't trust the Holy Spirit as he guides and directs us. But there's more to the story. After all, in chapter 20, verse 23, Paul recounts that the Holy Spirit has testified to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. And in our passage, Agabus, the prophet, also predicts Paul's suffering and imprisonment. But he does not urge Paul to not go to Jerusalem. Instead, in that case, Luke clearly recounts how we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. This was their counsel, not the counsel of the Holy Spirit. This was their natural response to the prophetic word they had received from the Holy Spirit. They loved Paul, and knowing that he would suffer, they wanted him to avoid that. Their natural instinct was to want him to avoid that, that Their love for Paul clouded the fact that the Spirit was leading him into suffering and was giving him these words in order to prepare him for that suffering. And so with all that in mind, it seems best to read verse 4 as a condensed summary of sorts, in which the Holy Spirit once again warns Paul that he would suffer and be imprisoned in Jerusalem. And And then the prophets wrongly interpret that prophecy to mean that Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem. And in general, this probably indicates that the New Testament prophets were not like the Old Testament prophets who said, thus says the Lord, who gave us Holy Scripture. Instead, the New Testament prophets, as 1 Corinthians tells us, have to be judged and weighed by a higher authority because they could err. Even if they had received the message from God, they could interpret it wrongly or apply it wrongly. So even though those who pleaded with Paul loved him and longed for him to be spared affliction and imprisonment, Paul surrendered himself completely to the Lord's will, willing not only to be imprisoned, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. So the cost of faithfulness to Christ is complete surrender of our lives to his will. And from all this, we see two significant implications for our life. First, we should notice that the Lord's will for our life is not first and foremost our temporary happiness, but rather our eternal happiness in Christ. 
This is actually the mistake that all the believers make as they hear the prophetic word from the Holy Spirit for Paul. They all assume that suffering could not be the Lord's will for Paul's life. And so often we assume the same thing of our own lives. I'm sure many of us can think of Christians who pursued what they thought would make them happy only to fall headlong into sexual immorality, alcoholism, materialism, and so on. And then when in love, we challenge our brothers and sisters in Christ in their pursuit of sin, we get the rebuttal. But doesn't God want me to be happy? And so often, our temptation is to respond in this way. God calls us to holiness, not happiness. But if that's ever been your response, that's wrong. The rebuttal actually ought to be, God calls us to happiness through holiness. Tony Reinke gets it right. Sin is joy poisoned. Holiness is joy postponed and pursued. Or as Charles Spurgeon puts it, holiness is the royal road to happiness. The death of sin is the life of joy. Oftentimes, the Lord's will for our lives includes things that are hard, uncomfortable, even painful to us. And that doesn't mean it's not the Lord's will for us. That doesn't mean that we need to escape it as if that's not what God really intends for us. It only means that on the other side of that suffering is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. An eternal joy that will overflow from our heart. So please, don't pursue your happiness at the expense of the clearly revealed will of God. Listen to how he's leading you. Listen to his word, even if it leads you into suffering. Because at the end of that journey will be a far greater joy and happiness that comes through Christ. But second, we also learn about giving and receiving godly counsel from this interaction. Notice nowhere in this passage is Paul surprised that the community is giving input into his life. Nowhere Does the text indicate that Paul thought it was inappropriate for them to give him counsel based upon this prophetic word? No, it's good and right for us to seek the Lord's will together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Proverbs again and again urge us to pursue wisdom through wise counsel. It's the fool who rejects counsel. But we also learn that it's good and right to seek the Lord's will together, but we also need to learn how to give and receive counsel. Tim Keller puts it this way. This is an extremely instructive incident for us. We must never give or uh, advice or counsel with divine authority unless it is the plain teaching of the Bible. For example, you can tell your married friend, you must break off your adulterous affair. This is no doubt about it. This is not my opinion. God says so. Or you can say, you must forgive your mother. This is not my opinion. There's no doubt about it. God says so. But when it comes to advice and counsel about life choices that the Bible does not speak directly to, we need to always offer our advice, our counsel, with humility, with flexibility, open to contradiction and discussion. And so we can never say, God has shown me that you should leave your church and go to another church. Or God wants you to stop dating that person and date this other person. There's no doubt about it. And so on we go. We can perhaps say, I felt a burden to speak to you about this. I could be wrong, or at least partially wrong. 
nevertheless, I have a pretty clear, I'm pretty clear about this in my own mind. So here it is. And the incident in 21 verse 4 shows us that we can have real insight, divine insight even from God into a person's situation and still misunderstand how to apply that insight into their situation. And if the Christians in these communities could have spiritual given wisdom and still get it wrong, it must be possible to be completely wrong in our advice, even if it's out of love, even if it's well-intentioned, as theirs obviously was. And at the present time, many Christians take it upon themselves to invoke divine wisdom for their advice or their choices. And it's very dangerous to say, God has shown me that you need to quit this job. Well, then there's not any possibility for discussion. Instead of seeking God's will together and fellowship with one another, we either have to accept what that person has said as God's will or reject the person as a false prophet. There's no other alternative. And so it's clear here that the Christians were not shocked or even offended that Paul resisted their advice. They were only saddened. And so this is important. If they really believed their insights were infallible revelations from God, then surely they would have challenged Paul. They would have said, you're disobeying the spirits. But the fact that they were not outraged showed that spiritual insights were offered to one another humbly in the knowledge that they might only be partially right in their application and interpretation. And so as we give counsel, we do so humbly, ready for it to be ignored, ready for it to be rejected. And if it is, we embrace the attitude of Paul's friends. Let the will of the Lord be done. And if we're looking for counsel on a wisdom issue, although we certainly don't want to be foolish and reject wise counsel, at the end of the day, we need to listen to our conscience. If the Holy Spirit is clearly leading us in a particular direction that is not spoken to in Scripture, we need to listen to the Spirit's prompting, even if to everyone else it may seem unwise, because at the end of the day, we're going to give an account to the Lord for all of our actions. So we want to surrender ultimately to the Lord's will, whatever the cost, because ultimately it's to Him we give an account. And why do we do this? Why do we surrender our lives completely and wholly to the Lord? Well, it's not just because this is the example Paul gave us. It's because this is what Jesus, our Savior, did for us. As Paul's community had urged him to take a different course than the one that the Lord had set before him. So Peter rebuked Jesus when he said that he would have to suffer and die. As Paul was willing to take the path of suffering, so too Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane would plead three times for his heavenly Father to take away the cup of suffering prepared for him. Yet in the end, he would say, not my will, but your will be done. And just as Paul was willing to die for the people of Jerusalem, Jesus was not only willing to die, but he actually did die in Jerusalem. Not just for the people of Jerusalem, but for all who would turn their sin and trust in him. And so we surrender our will wholly and completely to the Lord because this is what Jesus did for our sake. He followed the Lord's will even to death on the cross. And so we've seen first that faithfulness to Christ requires us to be surrendered to his will. Second, we see in verses 17 through 26, faithfulness to Christ requires us to lay down our freedom for the sake of the gospel. Faithfulness to Christ requires us to lay down our freedom for the sake of the gospel. 
So having decided to head to Jerusalem, whatever the cost, Paul completes his journey there. And in verse 17, we see that initially he was gladly and warmly received by the brothers and sisters in Christ and even the elders or the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. As Paul related one by one the things God had done through his ministry. Use your sanctified imagination to imagine with me that report. Paul begins to open up saying all that had happened since he had gone on this journey. He says, let me tell you about this time that I interacted with several disciples who only knew of the baptism of John. And as they heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Actually, let me tell you about that time. There was these Jewish exorcists who couldn't cast the demon out. And as a result of that, actually, the Lord used it to prompt widespread confession of witchcraft and sorcery and to bring about people burning books devoted to sorcery. Let me tell you about this time that the gospel had such inroads into the culture of Ephesus that it actually began to undermine the economics of idolatry so that a riot actually broke out. And finally, his story would culminate in presenting a gift. All of these Gentile churches love this church so much. We've gathered this to serve your need. How would they respond to that? That's the only fitting way possible. The text tells us they heard it and they glorified God. Amazing news of what God had done. And yet, the joy was short-lived. The elders of the church in Jerusalem in verses 20 and 21 present a problem to Paul. There have been reports that Paul not only taught Jewish Christians that Christ's life, death, and resurrection meant that they were free from keeping the law as a means of salvation, but that he also taught Jewish Christians that they should abandon their Jewish culture and identity. As a result, there are many Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who are concerned about Paul's ministry, and the elders of Jerusalem recognize that this will be a problem when they realize that Paul is present in Jerusalem. And so in verse 22, the elders present Paul with a solution in order to demonstrate that he is not rejecting his Jewish heritage or teaching that other Jews should reject their Jewish heritage when they become Christians. Specifically, they encourage Paul to purify himself according to the Jewish law and custom and to pay for the expenses of several Christians who had taken a vow as they purify themselves. Now, we don't know what kind of vow this is or what sort of purification Paul uh, or the other Jewish Christians would go through. However, their hope is clear enough. By participating in these Jewish rituals, Paul would demonstrate that the reports are false. That's not what he's teaching. He's not teaching them to reject their Jewish heritage or the Jewish law. In verse 26, we see that Paul agrees to this suggestion. Now, understanding exactly what's going on in this passage is also a problem. And commentators differ over what this is about. Some would suggest that James and other Jewish elders are under pressure from Jewish Christians who insist that keeping Jewish law is necessary to become a Christian. And so Paul then, out of deference to these elders in Jerusalem, and out of a desire for unity, compromises the gospel by agreeing to participate in these rituals in order to appease those who insist you must keep the Jewish law in order to be a Christian. Now personally, I also went back and forth around this issue and thought at first, yes, Paul had compromised the gospel here. But as I dug into the text, I think evidence actually points in the opposite direction. Not of Paul compromising the gospel, but of Paul living out one of his commitments stated in 1 Corinthians 9. 
Here he writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but being under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. In this case, it appears that Paul becomes all things to all people, not just to evangelize the lost, but also to preserve unity in the church. And I think this is the best way to understand this text for several reasons. First, in verse 25, the elders of Jerusalem restate their position from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. They state that Gentiles don't need to become Jewish in order to become Christians. Instead, they simply need to forsake any idolatry that comes with their particular cultural background. In verses 20 through 21, they specifically mention this is an issue for Jews who believe and live among the Gentiles. And finally, in verse 21, tellingly, the elders of Jerusalem describe the issue Jewish Christians are having is over customs, not the law. And finally... We know from elsewhere, Paul is willing to oppose the Apostle Peter to his face over the exact same of issue, issue. Are we really to believe that a few years have gone by and Paul has become a coward and would not be willing to oppose the elders in Jerusalem? I think not. Now, it's best to understand that Paul, James, and the elders of Jerusalem all agree. Salvation is by grace, received through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That Gentile Christians don't need to become culturally Jewish in order to become Christians. But now, the question is this. Do Jews need to stop being culturally Jewish in order to become Christians? Is Paul teaching as he goes from place to place, Hey Jews, if you're going to become a Christian, you need to stop being a Jew. And the resounding answer is no. In fact, we've seen through Acts that Paul has an appreciation for his Jewish heritage. We saw in Acts chapter 20, he stays in Philippi to keep the Passover. In Acts chapter 20, verse 16, Paul is hastening to be at Jerusalem for the feasts associated with Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 16, when the half-Jew Timothy is not circumcised and that's compromising their ministry to the Jews there, he has Timothy be circumcised. So neither Jews nor Gentiles need to reject their cultural heritage to become Christians. Instead, they must renounce idolatry. Anything, including their culture, that would compromise their faithfulness to Christ. But the beauty is, when our cultural heritage is no longer the basis or the primary basis for our identity, we're free to embrace different cultures for the sake of the gospel. We're free to embrace things that are not our preference or not our background in order to reduce barriers to the gospel. As one pastor puts it to Paul, Cultural practices are matters from which he had been completely liberated. So liberated that he was not offended or disdainful of them, nor enslaved to them. Now, some people think they've been liberated from cultural practices, but their bitterness and contempt for them mean that now they could not engage in them, even if that would be helpful to a relationship. You can imagine the scenario. Someone has lived in what felt stifling, oppressive. They're finally freed from it. And now they're so free they'll never go back, even if that would help someone who's in that same environment. 
But that's not actual freedom. You're still enslaved to what you've come from because you're bitter towards it. You disdain it. You're not free like Paul to leave it behind or take it up as is fitting for the occasion. This is not the case for Paul. Just from F.F. Bruce, he puts it this way. A truly freed spirit, such as Paul, is not in bondage to its own freedom. So Paul is not compromising here at all, but acting in accordance with his own principles. The gospel frees us from cultural customs so that we are able to use them or not use them for the purposes of both fellowship and mission. Yet as both a nation and a culture birthed out of the cry, give me liberty or give me death, our own heart posture is rarely like Paul's. Rather than laying down our freedoms, our rights for the sake of others, instead we are in bondage to our own freedom. We want to be free from all constraint, no matter what it costs or who it costs. We see this, of course, in our culture. Everyone cries out for the freedom to fashion their own identity, even if it costs someone else their own freedom. For example, the norm now is to demand for people to call us by our preferred pronouns, even if that infringes on the freedom of a Christian to believe that according to the Bible, we can't choose our gender and therefore we can't choose our pronouns. Yet the blood that runs through the veins of the world is the same blood that runs through the veins of the church. Rather than becoming all things to all people so that by all means we might save some, we change that. We often want all people to become like us so that by all means we might be comfortable. And so I want to ask you this morning, what rights, what freedoms do you hold on to so tightly that you might need to loosen your grip a little bit for the sake of the gospel? Perhaps some of us need to hold our own cultural preferences more loosely And we need to start by recognizing it's not only every other group of people that have a culture, but that we have a culture too. This may, of course, seem obvious to some of us, but it's really not. We betray our own sense that everyone else has a culture, but we don't. When we say things like, you know, those are the ethnic foods. Mexican food, Greek food, Italian food, those are ethnic foods. Everything else is just food. No, all food is ethnic food. We have a culture that shapes what we like to eat. We see this in ministry. Ministries to people not like us are called the ethnic ministries. No, all ministry is ethnic ministry. We're just crossing barriers to other ethnicities. When we're surrounded by people who think like us, dress like us, act like us, think like us, talk like us, it's easy to think that our culture is normal. And not just normal, it's right. And everyone who does things different are not just different, but wrong. But the reality is every single one of us has a culture. If we're ever going to be able to lay down that culture for the sake of the gospel, we need to first recognize we have one. And so a good place to start if you're not aware of your own culture would be to simply ask, what's the difference between a Western culture and a non-Western culture? Once you've answered that question, you might go down the rabbit hole of, all the various kinds of subcultures we find within Western culture. And as you do so, you'll learn there's different cultures between generations, races, genders even. All these things shape the way we relate to one another. And understanding our own preference and someone else's preference, our normal way of doing things, their normal way of doing things, enables us then to pick up or lay down a variety of cultures as suits the occasion. 
And so as you learn that, you'll be better prepared to pick up or set down your culture for the sake of the gospel. And connected to that, perhaps some of us need to recognize how much we absolutize our own cultural preferences when it comes to worship style. We might say things like this. That song has too much emphasis on me. We should avoid the language of I and me in the songs we sing. Instead, we should use corporate language like we or us or make sure that the songs focus about God, like this one up here. My, I, me, me, my, I, me, my, my, me. Is that a psalm? Or how about we say corporate worship is about us pouring out our hearts to God, so we should avoid songs that address one another horizontally, like this song. Oh, men, not, oh, God, oh. How long will you, but you men, know that the Lord? Hmm. Or we might say this song focuses too much on instruments, and the volume makes it hard to enter into the introspective forms of worship. So we really ought to turn down the volume and avoid drums like in this song. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Or we might say, that song is shallow. It lacks depth. It's so repetitive. How many times can we repeat the same line over and over and over again like this song? For his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. And it goes on like that for 26 times. Or we might say some songs are too wordy, too long. We'll never be able to memorize them. We'll never be able to enter into the heart of worship like that. Like this song. Psalm 119. 176 distinct verses. None of them repeating themselves. And then there's that one song with questionable theology. That asks God not to take his, away his Holy Spirit. As if God would ever do that to a genuine Christian. Like this song. You see, the Psalms defy our cultural expectations about our, what our worship together ought to look like. And they remind us that our worship needs to be more about the object of our worship, Jesus, than our culturally conditioned emotional connect, connection to worship. Faithfulness to Christ requires us to lay down our freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Now, as I mentioned Paul did not compromise the gospel as he laid down his freedom for the sake of others. And neither should you. As Tony, Rain, or Tony Merida puts it, never compromise the gospel and never participate in sin when you are attempting to reach people. But don't convey the impression that everyone must first be like you before they can take your invitation to accept Christ seriously. Some Christians struggle with this aspect of missionary living. But when the gospel is our main thing, when we find our identity in Christ rather than an ethnic group, social class, or particular culture, then we'll be able to minister humbly and lovingly with Pauline flexibility. So again, I'd ask you, are you willing to lay down your freedoms, your rights, your cultural preferences for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to become all things to all people, not just so that by all means you might save some, but so that by all means we might preserve unity in this church family. The reality is that only someone who is truly free in Christ can do this, because this is what Christ did for us. 
As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, though Jesus was in the form of God, holding on to all these divine rights and privileges, he did not count his equality with God as something to be grasped, held on to, or exercised. Instead, he emptied himself to serve and to die so that we might have life. Faithfulness to Christ requires us to lay down our freedom for the sake of the gospel. And finally, we see in verses 27 through 36, faithfulness to Christ requires us to be willing to be misrepresented and mistreated. Faithfulness to Christ requires us to be willing to be misrepresented and mistreated. So having received the encouragement from the elders of Jerusalem, Paul does what he was encouraged to do. And while he's at the temple, he's falsely accused. We see this in verse 27. Some Jews from Asia stir up the crowd, saying that Paul was teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and against this place. It didn't matter that the very reason Paul was there was to demonstrate that wasn't true. Further, they accuse him of bringing Gentiles in the temple to defile this holy place. No matter, that wasn't actually true either. They had simply supposed there would be a Gentile with them because earlier that week, They saw Paul with a Gentile. And then in verse 30, we see with these accusations, the people are set against Paul. They seek to kill him, and they begin to beat him until the Romans learn what is going on, send soldiers into the temple, and then they arrest the person who's being beaten, assuming he must have done something wrong. But the crowd was in such an uproar that in verses 33 through 35, they can't actually figure out what he's done wrong. They actually have to pick him up and carry him out because the violence was so great, he couldn't just walk out. And just as years earlier the crowds had cried about Jesus, they cry out about Paul, away with him. All the prophetic words Paul has received up to this point are beginning to be fulfilled. Paul was mistreated horribly. He was arrested because he was being brutally beaten. And he was being brutally beaten because the crowds wanted to kill him. And the crowds wanted to kill him because he had been misrepresented. And he had been misrepresented because some Jews from Asia made false assumptions about him. Because as we learn in Acts chapter 19, they had become stubborn and continued in unbelief as Paul taught them the gospel. They made these wrong conclusions. They misrepresented him because they hated Paul and his gospel. But it was not just Paul who suffered in this way. It was also Jesus. You remember? Though Jesus had committed no sin, he was misrepresented and falsely accused. Though Jesus was innocent, he was mistreated. He was mocked, beaten, and condemned to death. And as it was for Christ, it will be not just for Paul, but for all of us. For Jesus himself said this, All men will hate you because of me. A student is not above his master. Are you willing to be misrepresented? Are you willing to be mistreated so that you can remain faithful to Jesus? Are you willing to do those things when it's actually your faithfulness to Christ that causes you to be misrepresented? Obedience to Jesus will involve hardship. And so we shouldn't be surprised when intimidation, hate, and false accusations come our way. Many Christians have been and will continue to be victims of hostility and lies. The early Christians were falsely accused of incest, cannibalism, and atheism simply because they greeted one another with a kiss 
took the Lord's Supper and refused to worship the emperor. Today, we're accused of immorality and bigotry because of our views on marriage and morality. And so when falsely accused, when persecuted, remember that the suffering servant is with you. Jesus stands ready to grant you grace in your time of need, and he will have the last word. Now, one more thing I want us to notice is how all this began to took place for Paul. The Jews from Asia misrepresented Paul. The crowds believed that misrepresentation, and then they were stirred up to mistreat Paul. And sadly, the same thing takes place not just in the world, but in the church. In the last several decades, with the rise of the internet, we've seen a proliferation of so-called discernment ministries. Bloggers, YouTubers, who are devoted as self-proclaimed watchdogs to warn all Christians of the potential heretics, false teachers, and fierce wolves. And while sometimes these watchdogs are warning Christians of real danger, they often set their sights on faithful pastors and faithful ministries, accusing them of heresy and false teaching, either because more innocently they've misunderstood them, or they've made a false assumption based upon something connected to them, or because they simply disagree over an important but not essential gospel issue. And yet that difference leads them to think they're a false teacher. And what's so hard about this is often the accusation, whatever it is, is something we ought to be concerned about. These watchdogs often are calling out for, hey, beware of this person being woke. Beware of this person compromising the scripture. Beware of this person twisting a Christian sexual ethic. All of which we should be concerned about. All of which, if was true, would be concerning. However, like Paul was falsely accused based on a wrong assumption, often these accusations are based on false assumptions, if not deliberate misrepresentation. And tragically, Christians of goodwill listen to these discernment ministries. They listen to these bloggers and YouTubers misrepresent faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, and then they begin to mistreat both the person who's been misrepresented and anyone who's associated with them. I've seen this firsthand on multiple occasions. One time, people raised concern with me because of one of these discerned ministries accusing my seminary of going woke. And so they thought I must be going woke. In this case, I personally knew all of the professors involved who had been accused. I knew all of the administrators. I went back to them directly, asked, hey, what actually happened here? And they reported back to me, no, we're not teaching critical theory like this student has said. Actually, this student is one of the unteachable students we've had that everyone is having problems with, unsurprisingly. When I took that information back to the person who was concerned, they didn't believe me. The person that they actually knew in the flesh and instead trusted this voice that they'd seen on the Internet. On another occasion, someone raised concerns with me about my faithfulness to Scripture uh, because I've been influenced by and frequently quote Tim Keller. That's no surprise to any of you. But another discernment ministry had alerted this person to the fact that Tim Keller was a heretic and a closet liberal seeking to lead conservative evangelicals away from the truth. This person then never investigated those claims by listening to one of the thousands of Tim Keller sermons available online or reading any of his books that had been published. 
Instead, they assumed the discernment ministry was right, and I was guilty by association. It didn't matter that I had never taught anything from Scripture that they actually disagreed with. It didn't matter that the esteemed liberal institution, Princeton Theological Seminary, actually rescinded an award they were giving to Keller because of his orthodox views on marriage and gender. It didn't matter that Tim Keller has on multiple times and in multiple publications critiqued critical theories and contemporary gender identity as well as defended orthodoxy against liberal Christianity. This discernment ministry they had found either had misunderstood Keller or made a wrong assumption about Keller or, as I'm tempted to uncharitably believe, deliberately misrepresent him to serve their agenda because they didn't like some fashion of the truth that he was preaching from the Bible. But now that this person had listened to this watchdog, they would accuse both me and Keller of heresy, of being unwilling to listen to the gospel. It doesn't take much work to find these kinds of discernment ministries raising concerns about all sorts of theologically conservative pastors. Not just Tim Keller, but David Platt, John Piper, Mark Dever, and even Al Mohler, who's more conservative than all of them. I found watchdogs for all of them. And they continue to be accused of being false teachers and wolves. And it doesn't take much to find the same sort of thing for faithful ministries, like my seminary, or the Gospel Coalition, or Nine Marks, or even our denomination, the EFCA, being accused of going woke or abandoning the gospel. Now, these ministries and men are far from perfect. There's many places where I disagree with them personally. But on every occasion that I've come across one of these sorts of accusations, seems to be they've misrepresented them because they don't like an aspect of something biblical they're already teaching. And tragically, then, when people listen to these discernment ministries, and begin, they begin to mistreat both those who've been accused and anyone who's associated with them. So I want to ask this morning, why do we listen to stuff like that? Well, there's probably dozens of reasons, but one, at least, is our heart's insatiable appetite for gossip. We want to be in the know. We want to be enlightened when everyone else has been deceived. But also, sometimes it might just be easier to believe the lie of the one who's doing the accusing than to be challenged by the truth of the one being accused. Because in so many of these cases, these men are teaching something they find in God's word. And yet that makes us uncomfortable. It unsettles us. It calls us to greater faithfulness. And so rather than be challenged, we can dismiss through accusation of false teaching. This is what was true for Paul. This is what was true for Jesus. They hated what these men represented. And they preferred the misrepresentation rather than being challenged by what they taught. But dear brothers and sisters, this is what the world does. It is not supposed to be this way among the church. We are to love one another and to heed God's word. So let me plead with you. Please, please do not listen to these discernment bloggers. Don't watch them. Don't investigate them. Ignore these self-proclaimed watchdogs. Instead, when you have a question about a ministry, a Bible teacher, or a pastor, go to the elders you have entrusted the care of your soul to. It's the elders of this church who know you, love you, and pray for you, not the talking head you found online. It's the elders of this church who are 
you're able to see not just what they're teaching, but how they're living. You'll never see the life of an online blogger. And it's the elders of this church who will one day give an account for your soul before God, not a discernment ministry. And if you do happen to just come across someone accusing someone of being unfaithful to the gospel in one form or another, exercise discernment. And consider not just the isolated quotes or clips this discernment ministry has pointed to as evidence of their heresy and unfaithfulness. Consider all of that person's comments on the subject. Give your accused brothers or sisters the benefit of the doubt. Seek a charitable explanation for what's going on. Is it possible that they've been misunderstood, misrepresented, or that they simply misspoke? Lord knows we've all said stuff we don't actually believe. My most egregious error was in youth ministry. I told the students, hey, pick your favorite dead person that you'd like to meet, but you can't pick Jesus. You'll catch up on on that. But I imply Jesus was still dead. I don't believe that. Jesus is alive, right? But we all say stuff like that all the time. So we need to pause when we come across accusations like this and seek discernment. Is what they're saying really true? Or is it based upon a lie? Is it based upon a false assumption? Is it based upon another agenda to protect them from having to heed God's word? And although we want to avoid and participating in the misrepresentation and mistreatment of brothers and sisters in Christ ourselves, the reality is, as Jesus warned, this will happen to those who love him. It's unavoidable. It's unescapable. And so we need to be ready. So will you continue to be faithful to Christ even when it's your very act of faithfulness that leads you to being misunderstood, misrepresented, and mistreated? Faithfulness to Christ requires us to be willing to be misrepresented and mistreated. Faithfulness to Christ requires us to lay down our freedoms for the sake of the gospel. And faithfulness to Christ requires us to be surrendered to his will. Now, if you're a non-Christian with us this morning, as one pastor points out, I can see how you would look at Paul's life and Jesus's life for that matter and say, what a waste. The cost isn't worth it. But scripture gives us a different view. Jesus said these words to his disciples about the disastrous result of pursuing material gain instead of him. What does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The only thing more costly to faithfulness to Christ is the cost of not being faithful to Christ. Follow Jesus now, and you will experience unspeakable joy later. But reject him now, and you will experience eternal suffering later. And so he bids all of us, come and follow him. So I would plead with you this morning, if you don't know Christ, if you have not turned from your sin and trusted him, do so today. And if you're not ready to make such a monumental decision like that, then I'd plead with you, at the very least, begin considering his claims. 
Join us in looking at the Gospel of Mark so that you can see who Jesus is and what he's done. Any of us would be glad to do that with you. And so if you have questions about what this looks like, what it looks like to turn from your sin and trust Jesus, if you have questions about who he is and what he came to do, come talk with me or any of our members after the service. We would love to interact with you about this. But if you are a Christian, remember the reason why we joyfully and gladly pay the cost of faithfulness to Christ. As Jamelia put it, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot gain, what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. And Jesus secured that for us when he surrendered his will to our Heavenly Father and drank God's wrath in our place. Jesus secured that for us when he laid down his freedom for our sake. Jesus secured that for us when he was misrepresented and mistreated so that by his wounds you may be healed. We pay the cost of faithfulness to Christ, not just because of what we'll receive by paying the cost ourselves, but because of what we have already received when Christ paid the price for us. So as we conclude our time in God's word this morning, let me invite you to reflect on what God has been saying to you through his word. Where are you tempted to pursue your happiness at the expense of the Lord's will? What steps can you take to give and receive counsel in a way that is surrendered to the Lord's will? What rights or freedoms do you need to hold more loosely for the sake of the gospel? What steps can you take to prepare to be misrepresented and mistreated for your faithfulness to Christ? And finally, which discernment ministries or news sources do you need to exercise more caution towards because the good concerns they raise are based on false assumptions? Let's take a moment to consider what God has been saying to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we recognize that our salvation was bought at a steep price. The precious blood of your Son. And we recognize that there is a great cost to following your Son as we persevere until he returns. And yet, Lord, our deepest prayer is that you would help us to see Jesus in all his glory and all his goodness so that we would be delighted to pay the cost. That it would be our joy to surrender everything to give our lives to him. Help us to be faithful to Jesus no matter the cost. We need your Spirit's help to do this. 
So in the power of the Spirit, in the name of Christ, we ask that you would strengthen us to faithfully follow you no matter where you lead us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.